A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, Melissa Reddy of The Independent, and David Priest, the coach and columnist. This is where the Champions League gets interesting, very interesting. Bayern Munich meet Paris Saint-Germain in a repeat of last year's final. Manchester City will meet the winner of that tie if they progress against Borussia Dortmund in the last eight. Chelsea have an eminently winnable tie against outsiders Porto. That opens up a potential Premier League semi-final against Liverpool if they overcome Real Madrid. So, Melissa, have we got an English winner on the cards here? It's looking like it's set up for that. You could have three English teams advancing. And if you look at how the draw has shaped up, I don't think any of them are wincing at what they have. All the teams would have wanted to avoid it, A, each other. None of the English teams want to face off at this stage. And they would have wanted to avoid Bayern and PSG. So that's all worked out for them. And I think if you're looking at Manchester City, this represents their best opportunity to win the tournament because as good a team as they've been in the past... They always had that kryptonite of being hit on the counter, of being vulnerable in transition. And they've removed that from their game. They are so steely now. There was the the instance in the Manchester derby where they were caught out by that. But since we've not seen it again, and it's been the only one slip up that they've had during an amazing run. You look at Chelsea, who do not concede goals. They've conceded twice. Only one opposition player has scored against them under Thomas Tuchel's reign, which is phenomenal. And I've watched a lot of them since he's taken charge. And it's not just about not conceding. They hardly give up high-quality chances. So the only, you would say from the English sides, and this sounds so weird to say given their European pedigree even in recent years but Liverpool are the weakest of the English teams in the draw and yet they'll look at Real Madrid and think they're not having a fantastic season either and we've got Kiev to right the wrongs of so I think all the executives the coaching staff and the players of the English clubs will be pretty happy with what's materialized 
Yeah, let's start, if we could, David, with Chelsea, who, you know, let's be honest here, have got the opponents that probably everyone else wanted, Porto. It was a fairly predictable last 16, you know, with the exception of that manic Porto victory over Juventus. Chelsea's first quarter final since 2014. Do you think Tuchel's tactical maturity above anything else is really suited to this elite level of competition? I think it's been the biggest factor so far in uh, in his time at Chelsea. You know, you, you, tactically, he looks at oppositions, sees the strengths and weaknesses, adapts, finds solutions, ways to combat their attack and threats. And that's without real compromise or, or weakening his own team. You know, he seems to come up with a, the perfect plan every time. He's got lots of options. He's using them, you know. Giroud and Tammy Abraham, you know, they've they've been big assets in this seasons at times. They've got them through games, but he looked at the game of the night against Atletico and thought, well, we need pace. We don't want to play at the hands of Atletico by trying to play up to, to Giroud or, or, or Abraham. And, and he's worked everything out perfectly well. And I think that um, it's going to be a really interesting game. I think you know you can you can look at the other two and they look a little bit more um, box office. You know, City and, uh, and Dortmund, Real and Liverpool. But this is the real sort of the real football and challenge for both teams because Sergio Conceição is ex- almost exactly the same in the way that he thinks, the way that he came up with a plan against Juventus to nullify them, nullify, and knew that they were going to be um, they, they don't do well if you don't give them any space and you drop deep, and not late between that four four two and four four three threes he does, you know he he, he is a. a a canny operator as well. So it's going to be interesting, the two of them up against each other. Yeah, you've got Pepe, who's, what, 38 now, and, you know, he's no shrinking violet. Let's put it like that. You know, when you look at Chelsea, Melissa, uh, can we just look at, at the almost, it's, it sounds strange to actually say say it, but the revival of, of, of N'Golo Kante, it was almost fashionable for a very small spell to actually doubt his impact and almost tinker with his role. How key is he for Chelsea, do you feel? I have hardly ever watched Chelsea, even when his form and ability or whether he was past his peak was questioned and not been impressed by him. Because Kante is so intelligent and so positionally aware, it's extraordinary. I've often seen him covering and recovering for like three or four players at the same time. And even when he was being played further forward, he his assist numbers and his goal numbers picked up for a while. And I'd spoken to people that had worked with him in France. And they said, whatever you ask him to do, he'll adapt and do because he is such a special thinker through a game. But obviously, it does suit him to be the anchor, to be the one that reads and intercepts the game, to be the one that sparks Chelsea from their defensive to their offensive phase. There are no words that I can use to to sum up how highly I think of him and how highly I rate him because I just don't think enough words exist, to be honest. And... The, the joy that he displays when he's playing or when he's talking about football or any of that sort, 
it's just warming. I am a massive N'Golo Kante fan and I'm really happy that he's getting the credit and attention that he deserves again and the appreciation because I think a lot of times he's performed really well when the team hasn't or the cohesion hasn't been there. And then because he's no longer the influence he once was or the influence he once was in a hugely successful side that's winning things, it got held up against his individual performances, which probably wasn't totally fair. Yeah, what what strikes me about him is, is one is his humility more than anything else, and also, you know that that lung bursting run. I know that's a cliche, but it was actually true in this case. Ninety fourth minute the other night, I thought that was amazing. The Gallic influence at Chelsea is quite subtle, but it's actually quite strong, isn't it, Dave? If you think about it, Mendy in goal, no no goals conceded for nearly ten hours. What's your analysis of his goalkeeping style and impact? Well, first of all, I think you look at him over the course of the time that he's been there, he started off very well. And then there was that sort of period where there was a lot of bad decisions being made, getting caught in between sort of coming to take the ball and getting mixed up with his defenders. And I think a real big part of, of his performances has been the stability that's been given at the back by Tuchel. Now, I know a lot of people talk about playing three at the back, five at the back. Sometimes when there's a switch made, it's almost talked about as if it's some sort of witchcraft to make it work. And what's happening now is you've got somebody who in, in the hot seat there who's who knows how to teach it. He, he, he knows exactly... Or it shows the players exactly what's needed in those uh, in that tactical system, and that provides a stability, and that provides a platform for Mendy to be able to make better decisions. You know, if if things are unstable in front of you, then you're not going to be hundred percent what you're going to do. I mean, he's um, sometimes positionally, I find that he's a he can be a little bit wayward and erratic. But again, that you know, I, I saw bits of intelligence that the other night where he was using defenders to cover one side of his goal. It was notably the uh, the uh, the chance that they conceded near the end where he managed to get get a tip on it over the bar. So he's clever in that in those situations as well. And I think it's 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 like with any uh, any goalkeeper. You know, you look at all the big goal uh, the the most successful goalkeepers around. Take Buffon for example. He's been behind some of the best defences there's ever been for Italy and Juventus, but that also contributes to his game. And I think that they've probably been conceding chances before, especially under Kep when uh, Kepper was in goal and under Frank Lampard, they were conceding good quality chances to the opposition. Now it's a total opposite. They've started, you know, the fewer qual- uh, chances being uh, allowed against them, but also of a lesser quality as well. So that helps him be consistent in his game. Yeah, let's go on to Liverpool, Melissa. A club, obviously, you know very well. The final this year is in Istanbul on May the 29th. that ring any bells? (laughs) Of course it does. And I think when we look at Liverpool and assess the last few months and how they've been an absolute shadow of themselves in the Premier League for circumstances we've discussed in depth on the show and you look at them in Europe and they're completely different they're so much themselves on the continent and that competition has always been 
where they come alive, where they feel they belong. And there is sentiment in that, you know, when you talk about those electric Anfield nights and all, all these symbolisms that a club like Liverpool thrive on in this season of need where they need to hold on to any and every sort of crumb of comfort and silver lining. That the fact that the final is in Istanbul, that the fact that they still are themselves in European competition and that they have the chance to avenge the final defeat against Real Madrid, knowing that club, all these things in their heads will be building up to, hey, maybe we won't... Okay, not maybe they won't. They're definitely not retaining their league title. They might not even finish in the top four the way it looks, but they could be champions of Europe again. However, in saying that, Leipzig in the first leg beat themselves really by giving up two errors. And in the second leg, because they had to chase the game, they were very open, which meant that Liverpool c- could create a lot and, and take advantage. So Real Madrid pose a deeper threat. And then if they have to face one of the English teams, Man City and Chelsea are both better balanced, a lot better balanced and a lot more certain, especially in defensive phases than Liverpool have been. Yeah, certainly within that group, there are quite a few with points to prove. It's interesting, wasn't it, David? First England squad without a Liverpool player since 2009, announced by Gareth Southgate on Thursday. The big surprise was the absence of Trent Alexander-Arnold. Do you think he's been a victim of Liverpool's decline, almost a symbol of it? Uh, Certainly his game's been a a victim of of the changes that have been happening within the side. You know, his attacking, his attacking threat was always countered by Jordan and Henderson just being in that inside right position, ready to cover if needed. And maybe that's been something that's been holding them back in an attacking sense. Of course, then you've got relationships with central defenders next to you as well. So in what's perceived as his weaknesses, defending in wide areas, 1v1, where teams can think, right, we can, we can maybe get that trend here where he's, sometimes when he's pace con to help him out, there's not that sort of guidance and coaching coming from behind as much as it would be in, in the relationship that he's, he's formed before with the likes of Gomez and, and Matip on that side. So it is, it's a situation where it, it's cost him a little bit of form. I mean, I know a lot of people saying that he's he, he's been one of Liverpool's better players, certainly of late, and whether that's to, whether that's um, a compliment not given the, the, the people aren't playing as well as what they uh, they have been, but it's um, the success comes from the the last three or four seasons it's been a steady rise, and the talk about mentality monsters. At some time, you know, at some point, that's going to take its its toll as well. That's that, that mental fatigue, and also the situation that's been brought about by COVID and the really tight scheduling over the past twelve months. You know, it's bound to take its toll somewhere, and um, you know, there might be mentality monsters, but they're not superhuman. That's very true, and I think we're seeing that the whole you know, the impact of both physical and and mental fatigue. There's a new defensive axis 
Melissa of uh, Ozan Quebec and Nat Phillips. Do you think Jurgen Klopp will trust them in the final stages of the Champions League? I don't think there's much choice because as a pairing, I think they've now played the second most minutes together and they're such a new pairing. So that just tells you the extent of Liverpool's defensive chopping and changing this season. They've kept clean sheets when they play together, but most importantly, it's allowed Fabinho to go back into the anchor role in midfield, which gives Liverpool greater balance in all respects. The difference, Fabinho being pushed further forward in his correct position, the the fact that they're keeping clean sheets, that pairing, is largely down to him being there. And also that the attack has created more chances is no coincidence either. Now, Jürgen Klopp hadn't played Fabinho or Jordan Henderson in midfield and trusted two centre-backs previously because, like you say, better opponents can can get at centre-backs that aren't experienced enough. Yet, I, I, I think he's now seen that... It, if you've got greater protection in midfield, you can compensate for their lack of experience or their lack of game intelligence in certain situations. Now, by no means is that a solid pairing or the pairing Liverpool had ever thought they would be using or needed to use. You know, you're trusting one, a kid in Quebec. And two, uh, by the way, a kid who had to come in and instantly adjust to a to a new league, to new demands in a team that was severely underperforming and under extreme pressure. And Nat Phillips, who, you know, was thinking about quitting football altogether not so long ago. So it's not the best circumstance for them to be in, but I think they're making the best out of it and a huge, huge, huge part of that is having Fabinho in midfield. And when Jordan Henderson comes back, ensuring he plays in midfield as well. So I don't think Klopp, whether he likes it or not, has any choice. Because if he moves Fabinho back as a centre-half and Liverpool lose their balance again, that is on him. It's not on injuries. It's not on... Loss of confidence. It's not on you know being mentally fatigued. It's a tactical decision, and it will be on him. Yeah, and I suppose we shouldn't downplay Real Madrid's pedigree in this competition, should we, David? They won. They won the Champions League four times in five seasons, didn't they? Although they've not been in a quarterfinal for two seasons, they're unlikely to win La Liga, but. When push comes to shove in these type of big games, they've got big players. You look at Luka Modric, you look at Benzema, who's got 70 goals in the Champions League. They can't be overlooked, can they? No, not at all. I mean, we should sort of qualify that by saying that they're not exactly the team that the Liverpool faced in the final, uh, was it three years ago, four, four years ago? But also, it's I think it's it's great for, well, you know, when... Big players leave sides like Ronaldo leaving Real Madrid. It's great to see other players flourishing and getting the credit that they deserve. And Benzema has been doing that. 
it's not that he's been ever been undervalued or sort of you know not credit with being as good a player as what he is but now he's just really flourishing he's taking the head role and he's still going to be a big danger that's for that's for sure and of course all these old wily foxes Ramos and uh, and Modric it's still going to make it difficult when you don't have the ball yeah and I suppose you can say the same sort of thing Melissa about Bayern can't you you know they've reached this stage for the 19th time which is a record how do you see that Standout tie against PSG going. I think Maurizio Pochettino will be devastated because <laughs> <laughs> he's he's gone to PSG with you know their whole intention is to become European champions to finally not just be seen as this you know fashionable brand to be one of the the proper juggernauts and how oh, they. They come up against, if you're looking at, at the teams available, the one that you really don't want because Bayern know what to do. They know how to do it and they do it in some fine style. And they manage games superbly well, both in terms of the control of it, you know, when they need to speed things up, when they need to slow it down, time management, the, the, when they score their goals just before half time, quite early in games later, everything about how to sort of dominate a football game, Bayern are so skilled in. And PSG, all this season, both under Tuchel and now under Pochettino, have not been themselves. They're not the all conquering, free-flowing side. They've relied on individual brilliance, some moments to win them games, but they don't look a cohesive unit. You know, the, the Barcelona fixture was the standout, but if you look at their league form, it's just been up and down. Performances haven't been totally convincing, and so that's not a fixture Pochettino would have wanted or PSG. And in saying all that, Bayern probably don't want to face PSG, though, either, because, you know, it's a rematch of the final. Pochettino can harness that revenge mission vibe. But I think if if one team is more confident than the other, it will be Bayern. Yeah, and what always strikes me, David, is it's such a well-run club these days. You know, they they probably admit they stuck with the old guard for too long after winning in 2013. It now seems that they're looking towards the next generation. Okay, they're still hugely reliant on Lewandowski. Just the was it 39 goals so far, but they're 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 jettisoning players like you know Alaba who wanted 17 million a year to re-sign, Boateng, Javi Martinez. And there's a there's a group of young players coming through. You know, Musiala, they've signed up a Meccano. That is the sort of club which thrives in a competition like the Champions League, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's just great for them the position that they're in. That's the cream that the the Bundesliga produce elsewhere. They just seem to have first dibs on them, and they, and they just take them, you know. And and it's it's a hell of a uh, thing to have when you can. You've got that kind of acquisition power. 
And I think that's now they've got the right mix at the moment. You know, they, they, they have the experienced players that we've mentioned, but also they've got the youth there as well. Falso Davies, just incredible uh, footballer. And we talked before about Porto and Chelsea and how they can adapt to teams and 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 change things up. Hansi Flick's just going to go four two three one. Everyone knows what's going to be coming. Everyone knows what to expect. The biggest problem is trying to stop that kind of quality. They're the ones for me that, regardless of how City are playing this season, you know it's going to be really interesting to see if they they can both come through this, and then obviously face each other in the semi final. Yeah, that'll be some game, won't it? Without getting too much ahead of ourselves, you know, City have got to get past Dortmund, Melissa. Struggling a bit in the Bundesliga, still not sure of their requalification for the Champions League next season. Again, you've got youth there, haven't you? Jude Bellingham, Erling Haaland. Again, they can't be written off. No, they can't be written off. But the thing with Borussia Dortmund is they can excite and they can jolt you in a game. I I think the big fear playing against them is if Haaland has a few chances, the, the game can be taken away from you in minutes. And that's why I say Manchester City in the past will have been really wary and would have been in their own heads about, you know, suffering that blitz because it's happened to them so many times previously. Liverpool did it to them. Leicester did it to them. If you were really aggressive and direct against them, you could get joy, but not this version of, of City. And I think even psychologically, they've gotten over that barrier. And I would be absolutely astounded if Dortmund, yes, with all their incredible talent and verve and ability to play some stunning football, especially on the counter. I would be absolutely stunned if they managed to to hurt City in any remarkable way, let alone get past them. We talked about Chelsea's defensive stability, David. You know, City, lest we forget, haven't conceded a Champions League goal for 706 minutes. Within that defence, John Stones, what do you think have been the key elements in his return to favour? Well, I, I probably think that the, the time that uh, they spent out of the side has actually done him good. You know, it's not just a case of play working hard to get back in the team, you know, through his physical ex- ex- exertions in there uh, on the training pitch. It's also about learning. You know, when you've got managers like Tuchel and, and Pep Guardiola, that's what you're doing, they're educating players. And I think that um, what also is a, a sign of maturity for me is that in his first few seasons, he was trying to carry out his manager's instructions to the letter in every situation. As he's matured now and he's come back at the side, you can see that he's not only carrying out his manager's instructions, but he's doing them in accordance with the game. Sometimes you've got to do what the game asks you to do rather than trying to enforce what, what you want to do in situations you can't. And that's not by my by any means saying that, you know, he's just lumping up the pitch sometimes when, you know, when he feels in danger. It's, it's not about that at all. But also I think that the way that City are playing now, the, the way they're using the full-backs... More and more, it gives more options when he's got the ball as well. So there's there's less risk to a lot of his passing. And, and of course, you have to add the, the influence of Ruben Diaz alongside him. 
you know. They've missed that company kind of uh, influence on the side. And Ruben Diaz not only is a great defender, but he's a talker as well. You know, he gives instructions. He's not just a ranter and raver. You can see on the pitch, he's very vocal. Seeing interviews, he, you know, he expresses the way that he likes to play. He likes to talk people through games. And that's going to be a big help, not John Stones, but the people around him. I mean, I don't think I'm sort of um, overvaluing myself here, but they've protected Edison so much, I think any one of three of us could have been playing in goal from this season. <laughs> well, two of us might be. Not <laughs> have, me, ha- have you seen how tall I am, David? <laughs> That, the answer is not that, very that, that's how good they've been <laughs> <laughs> yeah I suppose you know, when we look at you know, Pep Guardiola's basically gone onto page one of the managerial manual and said look let's forget about talk of the, of the quadruple he's got that one game at a time mentality as a bit of a diversion really you know, it's, and it's another sign that the season is is accelerating fast We've got the FA Cup quarterfinals this weekend. They've got a quite a tricky FA Cup tie at Everton on Saturday, haven't they, Melissa? I don't know if I'd call it tricky, you know. I was at the Everton City game in the league at Goodison not so long ago. And Everton had tried to frustrate City, which worked for a few minutes until it just didn't. And the only shock in that game was that Everton got an equaliser. That that City conceded was the only part of the script <laughs> that, that seemed not to fit. But everything else, City overwhelmed them continuously. And I think Carlo Ancelotti actually said after that game, he can't see anyone beating them, let alone managing to get close to them. For the title and Everton need to do so much just to make City uncomfortable let alone you know be an actual threat in that game I, I, I would like it to be an even contest because I'm going to be there <laughs> and, I'd, and I'd like some drama for my match report please if any of the players are listening but I can only see it going one way, and that is City's way. Yeah, and I suppose you can you can say the same thing about the other tie involving a Champions League, an FA Cup tying involving a Champions League club, Chelsea, Dave. You know, they've got Sheffield United, who, to be frank, look a busted flush, don't they? <sighs> they did last Sunday anyway. I mean, it is... Mm. Um, you know, I actually spoke to Paul Heckenbottom a little bit this week, you know, and regardless of what anything does on the training pitch or, or, or what uh, how he goes about it on the on, on the pitch uh, at the weekend, you know, there's a big sort of shift in mentality needed. You know, there was a lot of talk about the players being hurt and, you know, almost like, a, it felt like a bereavement really, you know, that they were going through a sort of bereavement period. And, and in football, you... You can't let that happen, and I know that was that was Paul's sentiment the weekend that, you know, you can't you can't really let yourself be down and let it affect you because, especially the Premier League and again sides like Chelsea, they're not going to show you any bit of sympathy whatsoever, and they're going to put you to the sword. And I think that's it's they do have to be professional, have to shake this off, and then they have to you know if they want to go about it the right way and they 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 still have those feelings towards their their old boss Chris Wilder. 
go out there and and and, and give him performances in. Uh, I was going to say in memory of him. Of course, he hasn't died. <laughs> he hasn't died. But but you you know what I mean. In, in um and and try and, and get back to those the, the values and the philosophy and the principles of the play that got them where they where they were last season. Because it's been uh, it's been an almighty fall, and I think we always talk about second season syndrome. I know Ipswich did it under George Burley, where they they, they qualify for the Europa League, uh, UEFA Cup, and they were relegated next season. This uh, yeah, it's been a similar downfall, hasn't it? Well, lest we forget, Melissa, the the FA Cup still includes Leicester, who who beat uh, City five two this season. They play Manchester United on Sunday. They're at home. Is this the competition, perhaps? that would represent natural progression for Brendan Rodgers at Leicester? I think it does. Leicester's objective is to always be in and around the top four. Obviously, they'd love to break into that, but it's supremely difficult. And to sort of underline their progress, I think a trophy would do it and would take them to the next level in terms of their league ambitions as well. I'm, I hate saying a trophy represents progress because oftentimes you can win one and it doesn't really stand for much. But I think in the context of Leicester, given how well the club is run, how we've seen them recruit, what a good manager they have, and the fact that they are there and thereabouts in the league under Brendan Rodgers during his period at the club, it would really signify that next step. That's true. With Manchester United... David, they they probably got reward in the Europa League draw, uh, the quarterfinal draw. They've got Granada, who were the lowest ranked team. You know, they beat Mulder to to get to the last eight. Reward for beating Milan, and again another indication that United can win ugly, which I suppose top teams have to do. Yeah, and I think that's you know the the firepower that they possess up front it allows them to do that. You know they've central defenders have come for a bit of stick over the, over this season, especially by and uh, and Lindelof. But I think that um, Harry Maguire has been uh, he's been a, a real rock there for them, and of course they've got the goalkeeping situation now, which um, which poses a, a real big problem for uh, for Solskjaer. I'll be simply because he's got to decide now whether to uh, to go back to David de Gea or or to stick with Dean Henderson. You know. A lot of stuff that I'm reading, a lot of opinion things, you know, from a Man United perspective, I think that Dean Henderson should be given his head and, and, and given his chance. Should that happen? You know, it, it, it's, it serves up a, a massive problem for, for United and certainly for David De Gea, this time in his career, whether he's going to settle for that and, and how his attitude is going to be to, you know, if he's going to stick around and, and, and take up the challenge again because... Yeah. There's always been the question mark about Dean Henderson whether he's been ready or not, and you know he's he's had you know his cup games already this season. Now he's getting that little bit of run. He's getting some consistency. He's keeping clean sheets. You know, said last night there. You know, a clean sheet and uh, and he's contributed greatly to uh, to that great clean sheet in at the San Siro against AC Milan. It's a real coming of age stuff, and I think that you know I don't think United as a club will be worried about David Hay being on the bench per se you know they've done it with Pogba they've done it with uh, Alexis Sanchez you know they're one of the few clubs in the in the world who can take a £300,000 a week hit by keeping someone on the bench but I think 
yeah, it'll be it's a it's a real difficult decision that lies in front of Solskjaer. It'd be interesting to see what he comes with. What would you do, David? Because there is another. There's a human dimension to these issues as well. Always, you've got David de Gea. His wife, a newborn child, is in Madrid. He's having to come back to Manchester. You know, you've you've worked away, you know, from home yourself through football. How difficult is that? And would would that factor into any decision? Because if you look at De Gea's options, has he got any options to go back to Spain? Well, certainly, you know, the Real Madrid option seems to have gone with Courtois going there. He was performing well for them. People keep talking about making links to PSG when I think it's... You know, people are massively disrespectful towards um, Navas because he, he's performed brilliantly for them while he's been at the club. And it is, it's down to his options where, you know, where he could go. And if those options aren't suitable for him, then he's got no option but to stick around and fight. But also I think that if you look at the situation from my perspective and, you, and you, you're thinking, what would I do in this situation? I think you've got to take that sort of private life into account the private life problems that that can occur and that can affect performance because it does you know I'm the world's worst sometimes for sitting on Twitter and you know you're you're critiquing somebody's performance or some error that's been made and there's a whole lot goes into that you know the preparation for games and how their mental state is at the time to make those decisions in the games and I think the Solskjaer it's you know we always talk about tactics and philosophies when it comes to management and coaches but we sometimes forget the human side of it, the man management side, and he's got to make a big call on sitting down, talking with David De Gea, and and thinking and, and thinking whether he's going to be affected by him being put back under the limelight, and whether he's fully focused on that. For me, the easiest option at the moment is to keep continuity and keep Dean Henderson in the sort of level. Mm. It's going to be a test of his man management skills, isn't it, Melissa? And he's. To be fair to him, I think he's done a really good job with Paul Pogba, who you know showed his class and, and value yet again at the San Siro. With Pogba, I know it's very difficult to actually make any predictions with a footballer's future, but would you see him, you know, you're advising Paul Pogba, would you say stay at Man United? I would, because if we're looking at the market and being honest about it, there's who can afford Paul Pogba in this climate? The kind of teams that he would want to go to, this, the Spanish giants, as we know, are in a world of financial trouble and are trying to cut wages and get players off their books because they have overspent and now are feeling the pain of that coupled with the financial losses of the pandemic. So you're thinking perhaps a PSG, maybe a Bayern, although neither of those clubs require a player of his talent. And you look at United and you think they are building towards something. And I agree that Solskjaer has been great in terms of man management, not just with Pogba, but Luke Shaw. I think there's there's quite a few examples in the team. And the transformative effect that Bruno Fernandes has had since he's signed means that their trajectory is upward. Now, 
if I'm being completely honest, I think they only take a lot more sizable steps with a better, more pedigreed manager in charge. And that's not really a slight on, on Solskjaer. It's just, you know, he's at a different phase of his managerial career than other options one of which was Pochettino obviously he's at PSG now but when he was available you you contrast their careers and it's different and people will you know talk about the trophy but like I mentioned before that that's not always a signifier of progress so I think in Pogba's case getting back to the point it would make sense to stay at United United are an absolute behemoth of club, of an institution. And when he performs like he did last night, when he is so decisive and so... uh, There are very few players that can pull off the goal he scored. And you just need him to do that consistently. And if he does at a club like United, he is, you know, legend. He gets spoken about for decades. I don't see where he's going to go to get more impact or freedom or stature right now in the current climate as we're speaking about with covid and the top clubs being in financial difficulty yeah if we look at the europa league draw david you know the standout is probably ajax meeting roma unai emery who's now via real won't be unhappy about drawing dinamo zagreb let's look at arsenal slavia prague they tried um, Danny Sabayas a 10, didn't really work probably. Can you see a shape now of Arteta's team as it goes forward? And is that shape you know, designated by, by youth? If you can get Odegaard from Real Madrid, you've got Saka, Smith-Rowe, you know, Martinelli's, whenever he comes on, always impresses me. Do you see signs of progress at Arsenal and can it be translated to a competition like the Europa League? Oh, definitely. I, I, I really think that um, sometimes, you know, when it, through the evolution of, of Arteta's side since he, he, he came to the club, you know, sometimes you felt like it was a, like, it was forced upon him that he was having to play these youngsters and through whether it was lack of form of the more experienced players, through injuries... And they've worked for him and it's performed for him. And whether that's through luck or whether it's through his own judgment, he has to grasp that and really embrace it. And there's always the pressure at clubs at the size of Arsenal to, to have success week in, week out. But it, 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 the club must see it as a transition period and must see that the talent that they've got at their disposal and see, and see that... These players, the next two, three years, once they start coming to the prime ages beyond 23, 24, you know, there's a real good core of players that can build this club back up again and get it back into the top four. The way that he wants to play is, like we talked about with John Stones again, about playing to the manager's instructions to the letter instead of playing to the game a lot. You feel that's what's happening with him a lot. You know, of course, that's you know the mistakes that they've played are because of the way that Arteta wants to play, but it's a, it's about decisions and making the right times and and it feels like he, you know with the likes of Xhaka and people like that that he's having to educate them on body position orientation how they should receive receive the ball in different areas and 
you know, at that elite level, you you wouldn't think that he would need to be doing things like that. And sometimes you can see the frustration in him. And he's got all these little sideshow problems, you know, the Obama Yang problem from uh, from last week, which incidentally I, I I totally agree with. I think that he was he was right to drop him from the from the starting eleven simply, for, you know. Going forward for the rest of his Arsenal career, however long he's got left at Arsenal, you know, if you don't do that to to the captain of the team or to one of your star players, then you've got no way of doing it with younger players and and, and players who are on the fringe of the team to try and put your authority on the group. You know that you lose some integrity if you don't do that. But don't you don't you you know, you know football, David? You know we're we're led to believe that everyone's kissed and made up and everything's forgiven and forgotten. But does football, and particularly the drama around big players, work like that? Obviously, it depends on the, the individual and how they react to it. You know, there, there can be some people who just won't take it, some players who won't take it, and they think it's a, you know, that they're being disrespectful to them, and then they want to leave the club, and it's a bigger mess. But to me, the, he could have played Aubameyang, they could have won. You win those three points. But like I said, you lose the integrity of any decisions that you try to make in discipline matters with with regards to respect of the players. And no matter how good those players are, how professional they are, there's always that thing in the head that will say, well, he backed on, down on this situation or he didn't stand up this situation. And like I said, you lose a little bit of respect for the manager. And I think going forward, long term, regardless of what would have happened in that Spurs game, regardless of, even if they'd lost the game, you know, he wins long-term. Yeah. When you look at Slavia Prague, they're probably one of the most heavily scouted teams in Europe. Very good players, likely to move on. A couple at West Ham, who actually, funnily enough, do play Arsenal in the FA Cup on Sunday, Melissa. Just looking at that game for a, for a second, if I may, must David Moyes abandon his, his trademark caution in that competition? Because... For for a club like West Ham, the FA Cup is is an attainable target, isn't it? It's always a tricky one when something has worked so well, an approach has worked so well, and has gotten the club to the position we're praising them for in the league, to then say, okay, it's worked so well for you, and now you need to rip it up and do something different. I do think I maybe not being entirely cautious. And there are instances that I've seen West Ham against Liverpool, against Man United, where for periods in the game where the opposition were quite passive and not really doing much and not a threat and consider... Liverpool's issues that they've had this season and the state of them when West Ham hosted them. You're thinking this is an opportunity for you here if you're a little more direct, a little more aggressive, if you're taking a little bit more of the initiative. And we're not talking large margins. You're saying, you know, just 10% more offensively minded. I think they would have gotten greater joy from those fixtures. And I do think they can extract some joy from the FA Cup. If they do, they're obstructive and they're well-organized, but they can hurt teams. They showed earlier in the season that they can. 
so yeah, I do think a little bit of compromising will do them well. Yeah, I'd like to stay with you if I could, Melissa. In, let's look at the other issue around Slavia Prague. Stephen Gerrard, the Rangers manager, has called on UEFA to act quickly after there were allegations of racist abuse against the midfield player Glenn Kamara. It did look suspicious, let's put it like that, and we're we led to believe there were, there were punches were exchanged uh, in the tunnel afterwards. A pretty unedifying situation, especially when the, the Slavia as a club are basically saying that that accusation is, is, and I quote, imaginary. It's going to be down to UEFA. We've been here a lot of times, haven't we? And do you have trust in the football authorities to finally do something? If, of course, that, if, of course, you know, that, that accusation is proven. Not particularly. There's not much trust because, like you've said, we've been here before too many times and we'll continuously come here because marketing that doesn't fit in with UEFA's partners are seen as more of an issue, more punishable than racist offences. You know, we've seen how taking off your shirt or dropping your trousers or anything like that is, is viewed as absolutely unacceptable. And yet racism always is greeted with a soft touch now. It's always so difficult in these circumstances with player A says it happened, player B says it certainly didn't happen. But I will say, when you have been subjected to racist abuse, you know it, your reaction says it, you, the reaction of those around you speaks to it. It's, it's not something you can hide. It's not something you can imagine. And it's not something that you pluck out of thin air because you do not want to be in the position where you are receiving it. It is completely dehumanizing. And so you definitely don't create scenarios in your head where you are being dehumanized. And, you know, without hearing old sides or whatever that's the only thing I can say about it when I find it very very difficult I find it near impossible when somebody says this has what happened this is what happened to me I've been racially abused not to believe it because as somebody who has experienced it it drills down into every facet of your being and like I said so because of its impact, you don't just make it up. Mm, well said. In more ways than one, there's a lot of fallout from the Europa League. We've got Tottenham, the Tottenham situation, David. When you have a captain of Hugo Lloris's character speaking in the way that he did after that defeat in Zagreb, uh, to Zagreb of a being it being a disgrace, a result of a lack of togetherness and there was something that really struck me in what he said he said the team at the moment just reflects what's going on in the club we have a lack of basics a lack of fundamentals that's a football club that's broken isn't it 
sometimes those sort of insinuations without going right to, into specifics can be more damaging than if he did do that because it, it, it opens up to a whole world of speculation. But what it does do is, um, you're right, it, it, it shows that there clearly is a problem. Hugo Lloris on the pitch, he's a very measured sort of individual. We saw in the, in the Amazon documentary that he is a lot more vocal in the dressing room and he is a lot more expressive when he needs to be. But you're right, for somebody like him who's really measured to come out and, and to say those things, especially as a captain, it, it serves big problems to the to the club and for them going forward because now there's going to be questions asked. The coach on the coaching staff have to get hold of this very quickly. And I'm sure that if it's not today or tomorrow, there'll be a big meeting with all the players and coaches and they'll be wanting to thrash this out because he want to know what know what's wrong. And I think it, it, it's telling from Jose Mourinho's reaction after the game as well, because of course he was he, he was critical as well, but nowhere near as what he usually is. Or, or, or It's almost as if you try to play it down a little bit. And there's a conflict there already between them, what the manager's saying and somebody who's normally very critical to what these captains saying. It'll be interesting a couple of days and it would be great to be a flying dress room in there, inside their, uh, their training camp over the next couple of days. Yeah. What do you think, Melissa? Do you think Jose Mourinho will be manager at the start of next season? I think it's going to be very difficult for Daniel Levy to sack Mourinho because it draws up two big choices that he's recently made. One, getting rid of the manager that completely redefined how we viewed Spurs as a club. We suddenly expected Tottenham to win trophies, domestic trophies, to be consistently in the Champions League, to be Premier League title contenders, based on what Maurizio Pochettino did at the club. Pochettino, who came in with Harry Kane as the fourth choice striker and helped him become what we know him to be today. Right, So that's one big decision that he made. Then he replaces him with Jose Mourinho, whose whole sort of push for the job was this team are too soft. They can win the title. They just need to become nastier. They need to become difficult. Opponents must not want to face them. Now, opponents already didn't want to face Tottenham under Pochettino. But anyway, he said, this team can win the league. I can win the league with them. I am a winner. And what we're seeing is what we have seen as a trend with Jose. So having made the decision to part ways with Pochettino, he's then... He's had the evidence of Mourinho's final uh, months at Real Madrid, final months at Manchester United, final months at Chelsea, and decided he's still the winner that's going to take Tottenham over the line. Okay, I'm going to make him manager. Now, apart from just the, the football sort of reasonings for both decisions, there's the financial implication. We always talk about Daniel as the supreme negotiator. He sacked Maurizio Pochettino and was still paying him for a year, I think it was, while paying 
Mourinho to be manager. Mourinho doesn't have a break clause in his contract, and if he sacks him, it's not just the, oops, I made a mistake by letting Pochettino go and bringing in Jose. It's, uh-oh, I have another massive payoff to write off again. So I think it will have to get absolutely untenable for him to pull the trigger because it's not just the, the fact that he was wrong once, it's that he was wrong twice and it's going to cost him a lot of money for being wrong twice. Yeah, well, we've we've covered a lot of bases on this edition. I'll end it actually just by looking at Pep Guardiola and his insistence that the quadruple is impossible. Like many managers, as we said earlier on, he's a master at management of expectation. But let's look at the facts. City are 14 points clear in the Premier League. They play a demoralised Tottenham in the League Cup final. And if they emerge unscathed from Saturday's trip to Goodison, I think they'll win the FA Cup. That leaves the biggest prize of all. They're obviously in the toughest half of the draw for the Champions League. And that semi-final against Bayern, if it comes off, will be a tie for the ages. To me, you know, this has got the whiff of destiny. Do you agree? Uh, If you do, or even if you don't, please let me know. In the meantime, thanks to Melissa and David, and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.